0: Welcome back to the second episode of Coffee Nicks Movie Picks, a freshly brewed coffee and movie review podcast for you. My name is Nick Delaney, and I am your show host, coffee and movie reviewer, and your personal professional complainer. Yeah, in this episode, we're having an intergalactic smackdown. That's right. Today's episode marks the very first Coffee Nicks Movie Picks Double feature. We're putting two movies toe-to-toe and seeing which one comes out on top. So in one corner of the ring, we have Dune 1984, directed by David Lynch. And in the other, we have Dune 2021, directed by Denis Villeneuve. You can enjoy this brawl by quenching your thirst with Pete's Golden Latte, this week's coffee review. Please take a seat, stay a while, and let's talk Arrakis, Dune desert planet over some coffee. Capiche. But first, before we do anything here, please make sure to follow at picks on Instagram and TikTok, and CoffeeNickPick on X. I just found out that X is stupid, which we all knew, and they don't allow for long usernames, so I had to shorten it. So bear with me. Small edit. However, there you can find show updates like new releases, movie and coffee discussions and some special behind-the-scenes footage. Again, that's at coffee Nicks movie Picks. First and foremost, a very, very, very special thank you to all of you that have listened and shared the show so far. I was really anxious putting this out. I am absolutely a perfectionist, so whenever I put things out there, I'm really scared that they're not good enough. Um, So to see so much love for the show and to be so supported by all of you feels really great. So thank you so much to all of you for doing that. I can't wait to continuously improve, learn, and just have fun with the show and bring new and special and exciting things to it. I'm so pleased to have seen the show have such a great launch, and I can't wait to see what the future has in store getting into today's coffee review now brewing we have an iced golden cafe latte from Pete's coffee i am going to start by saying that Pete's coffee is my favorite corporate coffee chain i think that they have delicious espresso and really good flavors very good and like unique flavors and i recommend going there and trying it if you have one located nearby i think there's something there for everyone so the drink i had as i've stated is called the golden cafe latte and this one really threw me for a loop Um, some of you may know that a really big major corporate coffee chain that i will not be naming also is releasing products recently that are described as golden Um, and when they describe it as golden it's meaning it's made with olive oil so i thought that this was pete's coffee's attempt at using olive oil in their coffee Uh, But it's not. Uh, This is, in fact, a latte that's crafted with turmeric, ginger, and honey. But I would be interested in seeing Pete's Coffee try to tackle this olive oil uh, trend, if we can call it that. Um, And I'm definitely going to be having a review on this olive oil stuff at some point, because I think I have a very hot take when it comes to the olive oil coffee. But I'll save that for another day. So... Pete's Coffee describes the Golden Latte as zippy and sweet in flavor. My thoughts on it, definitely the zippy part. I'm very much getting that, and you know, there is, you can tell there's honey in it, so I'm getting the sweet too, but it's really just very zippy and weird. But I do like that it was paired with the honey. I think if it was only ginger and turmeric and no honey, the flavors wouldn't really balance each other out like they do in the latte that it is. So yeah, I don't know how I feel about the spice and the zippiness, as they call it, but I do like the flavor profile here and the balance that this drink has. I've had spicy coffees before, and maybe I can do a review on that in the future, but like an Aztec mocha where they put cayenne pepper powder inside a mocha drink, and I really do enjoy those drinks. I think that the cayenne pepper uh, pairs well with mocha flavors, but here, I'm not too sure it worked. And the cayenne pepper, that's a different kind of spice than ginger is. Ginger is a kind of like tea flavor. So when I have ginger in my coffee, it kind of throws me for a loop and I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. Especially when the ginger is paired with honey, I'm really getting a tea vibe here. Um, so when I was drinking it, I kind of felt my taste buds were confused. They were like, what, what's going on here? Um, I'm I'm willing to give this another try, and I feel like my review might change after that. I think it would probably improve. Uh, but I'm gonna have to give the iced golden cafe latte from Pete's the Nick mix. Leaning on a pick, but uh I'm not too sure. But Pete's I'm I'm so sorry. I I gave you a mix. Um I, I love you Pete's coffee. I really love you. And um if you ever want me to sponsor you, I will say the nicest things about you. Um I adore you. And um, while we're enjoying our coffee here, here, let me crack open my coffee that I have with me right now. So this coffee that I have with me is, uh, it's called LaCroix. Um, and this LaCroix coffee is tangerine flavored. And it, it's like coffee, but it's actually um, not coffee. It's sparkling water um so let me let me take did you like that snapping sound i could do like i could do um asmr with it oh i bet you did not like that slurp i'm so sorry okay but just um while we talk about the coffee thought for this week i wanted to have something that we could both sip on so um you you get a drink as well and we're gonna talk so there's a lot happening right now in the film world. I'm not ready to speak on it. I, I, I'm very upset with a certain company. Uh, it's a company that their, their shows, their media, their movies, their IP raised me. They have hurt me very badly before. And they have yet again done something to hurt me and i want to go off but not today is just not the day i'm not ready <sighs> this company is called warner bros discovery the first thing that warner bros discovery did they mistreat their cartoons cartoons practically built that company when i think warner bros i think looney tunes I think DC Comics, Justice League, Batman the Animated Series, I think Animaniacs, I think fun, childhood nostalgia, joy, peace in the world, none of those things have been present with this company in recent years. Let's get into why. The first time that this company wronged me was when they dealt with the cartoon the cartoon network show infinity train infinity train started out as a project made by cartoon network which got adapted into a full-length show and this cartoon i think is something that like adults can enjoy too i was really surprised with um some of like the not like blood and guts and horror but like the horror elements of this show are definitely there Which is maybe why it got pushed off Cartoon Network into a different streaming home. So they moved it to HBO Max. Great. It allows for more creative freedom. I support it. HBO Max canceled the show. Strike one. That made me upset. There were four seasons, I think. Yeah, four seasons. Maybe three. I don't know. Um, They were all spectacular. I recommend Infinity Train if you have not seen. Actually, (laughs) that brings me to my next point. They canceled the show which is an exclusive to HBO Max, and then they removed it from HBO Max. Let's make that make sense. Let's make that make sense. But we can't make that make sense because there's no sense to be had here. How are you going to have exclusive rights to be streaming something on your platform to take it off, to banish it from your platform, making it inaccessible to be viewed. And when they had their merger with Discovery, they not only removed Infinity Train, but several other cartoons that people enjoy. Over the Garden Wall, which is a spectacular show also from Cartoon Network, um, it's like a limited series. It was 10 episodes, I believe. They removed that. So that. You know, that was the streaming home for Over the Garden Wall. Banished it from their platform. For no reason, really. And oh, why, how much does it cost to just keep something on your platform? I don't know. I, I would think not much if you own that content. I, I don't know. Strike 2 with Warner Brothers and HBO Max slash Max. The Batgirl fiasco. I... I have never been hurt so much by a media, a studio, a company. We had a creative live action take in the Batman universe. And if you know me, you know I love, I love Batman content. Sometimes Batman content is the only type of content I'm engaging with. So for them to scrap that when it was done filming, it just needed post-production it never it never fails to amaze me in the worst way and why why this is such a fresh wound is that recently the same exact thing happened to another film that was in production which also happened to be animated and this film is coyote versus acme which would be an, a new looney tunes movie kind of like very you know like those y2k era Looney Tunes movies that were fun, that we all remember and love, it would be very much like a return to that, and that was also scrapped recently. So I, I'm very upset with them right now, and I, I want to have an in-depth analysis about this another day, and I, I feel like I just had it, but I want to go further. Maybe I'll have an, a whole episode dedicated to this where I can rant um, about this topic, because trust, I can I'm so parched after that. Long story short, it just really it it shocks me how you can have so many people dedicated to this project and so many creatives spending their time and their creative energy and all all of this on this movie and you know you're spending finances on the movie, all of that for the movie to never see the light of day and nobody knows why they're making these decisions, but I think it's really just disrespectful to the people that are working on this film. You know, part of the paycheck is knowing that you'll be able to share this project with others, and the people behind Batgirl and Coyote vs. Acme will never be able to do that. And these are films that fans want to see, and they can't. So it's also disrespectful to fans. On Twitter, though, there are a lot of people basically coming together and saying exactly what i'm saying as well um so if you feel this way if this upsets you that you will never see these films and that they are basically erasing their own library of media then you should go on twitter and let them know and you should use hashtag release Coyote versus acme hashtag release batgirl whatever you want to do let's come together let's make this happen it starts here Except it did not start here. It started on Twitter, probably, also known as X. This next point I have doesn't really have to do as much with Batgirl, mainly, you know, Infinity Train, Over the Garden Wall, Coyote versus Acme, the animated projects that this issue is affecting. I just feel like the larger issue here is that these major studios and, like, you know, the guys sitting in the big chairs, the CEOs, executives, whoever, they just do not respect the medium of animation also released around the same time as the coyote versus acme news we found out that there was a pitch to make a uh into the spider-verse style batman beyond film and warner brothers immediately said no to it and they do not want an animated batman beyond film and I, I'm just starting to think that they have something against animation. Um, They don't take it seriously as a medium, as an art form, um, and they don't really take a lot of, you know, their properties seriously. And it's just unfortunate and it's upsetting. Wow. Okay. That discussion got out of hand. Sorry, everyone. Um, Originally, that was not even going to be included in this episode. Uh, my original coffee thought I was going to be talking about Twin Peaks, Uh, which is the show I'm watching right now. If you haven't heard of Twin Peaks, it's a show created by David Lynch and Mark Frost. It had two original seasons, which aired from 1990 to 1991, and it's starring Kyle McLaughlin. Um, There was a revival season that aired in 2017, and there's also a prequel movie that I believe was released in 1992, and that one is titled Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me. I was going to go into a long discussion about how much I love the show. Um, I was a really big fan of it in high school, but I never got around to watching the revival season or the movie, so I'm watching it the whole way through now, and it is such a ride. The performances are so good, the genre blending is really good, and it's just so artistic and ahead of its time, and it's really scary if you're into that sort of thing. So the show follows the murder of a girl named Laura Palmer in a small town named Twin Peaks. The murder is especially gruesome, so much so that it warrants FBI investigation. That's when Kyle McLaughlin's character Dale Cooper comes, he's the FBI agent investigating, and as he uncovers more about the murder, he finds out that there are many dark secrets hidden within Twin Peaks, and there may be some terrifying supernatural elements at work. This is not really a review, and I don't really have the time to discuss it like I wanted to, but I just want to endorse this show and encourage you to watch it. It's really great, and it's such a crazy ride. If this sounds like something you are interested in, Twin Peaks, the original two seasons, and the revival season, Twin Peaks Return, is streaming on Paramount Plus, and the movie, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, is streaming on HBO Max. Thank you for having that discussion with me. I'm glad we had that talk um i I hope you're on the same page as me i hope if what i'm talking about you you didn't know about um, that you become interested in these things or you just enjoy hearing me ramble about them and act like a crazy person either way it's okay now enough of this enough let's get into this episode's double feature of now showing today we'll be reviewing dune 1984 directed by david lynch and Dune 2021, directed by Denis Villeneuve. And I did practice how to say his name before recording this, because I did before this call him Denis Villeneuve. To kill two birds with one stone, Dune is a soft science fiction fantasy based on the acclaimed book series by Frank Herbert, originally published in 1965. Dune takes place in the year 10,191, when the world is ruled by an intergalactic empire and several houses. The story follows Paul, the son of a duke and a woman possessing clairvoyant powers. They are the House Atreides, who at the start of the film is instructed by the Emperor to now inhabit the planet Arrakis, also known as Dune. Dune was previously inhabited by the House Atreides' sworn enemies, the House Harkonnens, for many decades. Arrakis is home to the most valuable substance in the galaxy, known as spice, a mysterious people called the Fremen, the beginnings to a prophecy involving Paul, and a devious plot to trap and kill the House Atreides. That is very hard to summarize. Um, (laughs) That is just the basic premise to this world. Um, And this is just one entry in the Dune book series. There are so many other stories happening in this universe. I have not read any of the books. I think that's very important to say. I have tried many times to read the original Dune, But I I can get, you know, a couple hundred pages in, and I just, it can't, it doesn't click with me. And I feel so bad saying that. I want to love this universe. I want to love this book, and I want to love the original source material, but I think I enjoy this story better in the film medium. So Dune 2021 is actually a part one, with the second part releasing in March 2024. If you're listening to this when this episode is first releasing, it's coming out this weekend, so go see it. And Dune 1984 depicts the entire story in the same runtime as Dune 2021. So it's basically like both parts of the newer edition in one. I'll discuss the implications of the different runtimes and breaking it up into two parts in a moment. Bear with me. So I am going to get into Dune 2021 first. And that's because, like many other people, this was my first introduction into the Dune universe. So, I think my thought process comparing the two will make more sense if I talk about this one first and then the 1984 one later. So, this edition of Dune is directed by Denis Villeneuve, who is also known for directing Arrival, which is one of my favorite films of all time, and Blade Runner 2049. And it's starring Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Zendaya, Oscar Isaac. Jason Momoa, Stellan Skarsgård, Josh Brolin, Dave Bautista, or two will even add more stars with Austin Butler, Florence Pugh, and Anya Taylor-Joy. So this is a very, very, very star-studded adaptation. And I'm going to preface my review of Dune 2021 by saying that this is one of my favorite films of all time. I've seen it quite a few times, and The second part is my most anticipated film of this year, because I I firmly do believe that it will uh, follow the hype of this first one. So this goes without saying, but I feel that nearly everything in this film is flawless. But I'll try my best to be neutral and offer some critiques and try to come up with things to say about it. But right away, the first thing I want to say is that the world building here is amazing and easily the best part of this film. I like that instead of attempting to find a depiction of the future that is super high tech and has robots and flying cars and all this crazy stuff, it creates a completely new meaning of the word future. This setting is so far beyond future. It's almost like a variation of the past. You know, this is in the year ten thousand one hundred and ninety one. That is eight thousand years from now. It's a version of the future that is like pretty much inconceivable. And I think this film does a good job of showing something that is so distant from us now um, that it almost feels like history. So, this world, it has like these medieval aesthetics, but it's also highly technologically advanced, um, but it's also artistic and it's also extremely philosophical. It's almost like if the Renaissance era. Were to happen in the future. I know I just described it as medieval, and medieval and Renaissance are two different things. I know, but you know what I'm saying. Medieval, as in there are houses and a, a kingdom, and this is not a history podcast. Stop. It's not. Don't don't get at me, please, please. Renaissance in the. I just lost track. I'm thinking about Renaissance by Beyonce. I'm moving to the next point, to speak more on the physical world building of the different worlds in this universe. We have uh, Caladan, which is the homeworld of House Atreides, which has like this Northern European vibe. It's like very oceanic and it's this rocky world. Giddy Prime, which is the homeworld of House Harkonnen, is highly industrialized. It's dark, it's disturbing. And then Arrakis is this sprawling, unknown, mysterious world. You you have all these different landscapes and these cultures and these architectures that are so creative and depicted so well in this adaptation. And it makes me and I believe it makes audiences eager to see what else there is, Um, you know, on these worlds. We're only seeing a fraction of them and also other worlds. I don't really know what happens in Dune Part 2, but I want to see them return to Caladan. I want to see more of that world. And I also want to see, you know, is there more civilization on Arrakis? I want to see, you know, what is life like on Gidi Prime? You know, that is a scary-ass planet. Um, I want to see more. They have that one scene with the human spider in Dune 2021, and (laughs) that, like, makes my heart drop. Like, I... (laughs) every time i i see it but i think there's more world building in this film outside of well the worlds i think world building also has to do with the relationships you have between these characters and the web that connects these characters um not to quote madam web which by the way i did watch and i also enjoyed and uh, i I have the perfect opportunity to talk about that later, and I will. But what I'm talking about right now is the dynamics between these characters. I think that character dynamics and relationships are a part of world building, not just physical worlds. And that's what I think is the strongest point of the film, is the relationship between characters. And this is mainly regarding Paul and his relationship with his mother and father. Early in the film, we learn that Paul's mother, Jessica, is a Bene Gesserit, um, which is a woman with clairvoyant powers and the power to command others using a special voice. And the film opens with us learning that she is secretly teaching Paul how to use this voice, secretly because this is forbidden, because Bene Gesserits are only women. And if a Bene Gesserit were to be a man, it would be fulfilling this grand prophecy. And we see that Paul is reluctant and not exactly confident or specifically interested in these abilities, um, and he's being pressured by his mother to learn them. The film also opens by characterizing the relationship between Paul and his father, Duke Leto, who reminds Paul that he will one day be Duke as well, although he's not very interested or eager or confident in that either. Very quickly, Paul is painted as this very complex character with this inner conflict. He is pressured to be a duke. He's pressured to learn the ways of the Bene Gesserit, which is forbidden. And he's not confident in his abilities to do either of those things. In one of my favorite movie scenes of all time, the Bene Gesserit group, uh, coven, cults, girl band... I don't, they're basically like boy genius. Boy genius visits Caledon before House Atreides moves to Arrakis. And they're there to test Paul to see if he could possibly be the one that's fulfilling this prophecy. So this scene is really famous. Um, Paul meets the Bene Gesserit mother and she holds out this box and asks him to put his hand in the box. He asks what's in the box and all she says is pain. He puts his hand in the box, and she puts a dagger at his neck that's poisoned. So if he tries to take his hand out of the box, she will kill him instantly. And this scene is so suspenseful. Thanks to, you know, Timothy Chalamet's performance, he really expresses this sheer amount of pain using his face very well. And also the music at this part is so fantastic. It's a really defining moment of this story, And all the different elements here, the world building, the characters, the suspense, the soundtrack, it all comes together in this moment, I think, to create something that's very impactful. And in this scene, uh, we see that Paul is also really frustrated with his mother because not only is he trying to sort out the emotions of becoming a Duke and learning the ways of the Bene Gesserit, he also has to deal with the fact that he could be a part of this really grand prophecy. And I'm saying all of these things are great about this movie, but of course this is all written into the book and it's all shown in the 1984 movie, but I'm mentioning it here because I feel that the 2021 film depicts these things so well. Character dynamics, suspense, emotion, these are things that are not intrinsic to a film. They have to be built and crafted and they use every single element of the film coming together to be conveyed what it comes down to between these two films is that dune 2021 has stakes and 1984 does not the dialogue the nuance between these characters the way that these scenes are laid out the opening showing these character interactions the attention to paul's character the symbols the suspense all of these contribute to these ideas being communicated effectively. Right away in the film, this relationship between mother, father, and son is given the utmost attention and communicated. Because of these character relationships and the world building, this film is extremely dramatic, it's extremely fantastical, and the science fiction is so well done. But what I love most about this film is that really, in its bare bones, it's a coming of age story. We see Paul at the very beginning not being a confident person. We see Paul at the very beginning struggling with his responsibilities, his confidence in completing those responsibilities, and his fear in the future, in traveling to Arrakis and starting this new life. You know, he's basically moving away from his childhood home. And like any coming-of-age story, the main character loses some sort of innocence By the end of the film and spoilers for if you haven't seen dune 2021 but paul is left only with these responsibilities that he is reluctant to have he loses everything else jessica is left with the consequences of her own selfish actions in raising a a boy in the ways of the bene Gesserit, and leto duke leto is left dead being a victim to his own integrity as a leader this film shows us these things. It brings us to these conclusions. It does not just show us these events and hope that we catch on to these ideas. In addition to this, I thought that the other performances of the film were pretty remarkable. I love the dream sequences in this film, they're, you know, kind of psychedelic. And I, I mentioned this earlier, but the soundtrack is by Hans Zimmer and it's just incredible. I know I've mentioned that I didn't read the source material, but I think that Denis Villeneuve crafted this story and brought it to life in a way that perfected the source material. I mean, this feels like a Shakespearean tragedy. The drama, the plots, the betrayals, the stakes, the dream sequences, the schemes, the villains, the feuds, I mean it's all there, it feels so Shakespearean and I think that's something that Villeneuve drew out from the book so well using all of these different techniques. And you know, I didn't even get started on the visual aspects in this film, just how beautiful it is, but I think that's something that, you know, if you've heard of this film, that's usually the next thing someone talks about. So I won't go any further on that, but it's just incredible. Now, on to my critiques. This is very hard for me to say negative things about this film because I am so attached to it. But after thinking about it, I did come up with, you know, quite a few things that I thought took away from the film. And these are things I actually... Agree with I did not just come up with them just so I could say negative things about it um i I do think these are valid. The first critique I have is that I do think there are some moments of over performances here. I think that every performance in this film is great, if not perfect, but um during certain scenes, characters would all of a sudden just scream their lines out of nowhere and. It wasn't always a moment that I think was warranted. For example, I know that Josh Brolin did this at one point. uh, And I'm not really a fan of this. I think that side characters... It's hard for side characters to warrant a moment where they are just screaming their lines. And I think this happened like when Josh Brolin was in the training room with Paul... So it wasn't exactly a very suspenseful moment. Um, I understand that, you know, these characters were under a lot of stress because they are moving to Arrakis and it it's not safe for them. But I think there could have been different deliveries during these moments. Possibly one of my biggest critiques of this film is that the third act is so slow. It's not bad. It's not bad actually it is boring. I was going to say it's not boring, but it it can be boring. Um when I'm rewatching this movie, I do tend to get like a little bit bored during the third act. It is slow. Uh this third act, it's basically Paul and Jessica wandering around the desert and yes, there there's action during this act and there's a lot of plot development here and it's never like there's nothing happening. But this feels like a 45-minute sequence that I think could easily be 15 minutes. And maybe it is 15 minutes, but whatever it is, it just feels slow. And th- there needs to be something that shortens it. And I think that it feels this way because the climax of the movie happens so early on. Um, and light spoilers here, but the climax of the movie is House Atreides being invaded and you know basically betrayed and destroyed. And this happens like fairly early on in the movie it's a long movie and i think that there could have been something later in the film that uh levels or surpasses this climactic moment uh, just so there's more payoff in the end and speaking of the end uh it's a bit confusing every time i watch this it's light spoilers as well it's paul and jessica coming across the fremen people the fremen people save them in a way i guess but they have to battle the Fremen to become one of them and I think it's you know just part of the Fremen culture but it doesn't really make sense to me especially because there's so many dream sequences that Paul has throughout the film where he's killed uh, when he becomes one of the Fremen and I don't know if this is trying to say that his dreams aren't always accurate or that you know he's destined to be killed by Fremen later on I don't know if that's true or not that's not a spoiler. I. Don't know if that actually happens but regardless the ending is a little bit confusing and feels a bit abrupt possibly my last critique with this film and maybe the biggest one that other people have aside from the third act being boring is is this a white savior story and the answer to that is that i don't think there is enough evidence in this film to give a yes or no So we'll find out this weekend when Dune 2 comes out, or if you've read the book, you already know. But this story definitely deals with some bigger topics of colonialism and race, and I think we just have to wait till Dune Part 2 comes out to see how the film deals with those topics. That is really all of the critiques that I have for this film. Other than that, I think it is amazing. It's perfect. This is my baby. I love this movie. and. It does bring me to tears every time I watch it, mainly in the box scene because it's just so powerful. The performances are so good. The soundtrack is so good. When I was in school, I would just listen to that soundtrack over and over while I studied, and it really helped, actually. But I want to know what you think about it. Do you like this movie as much as I do? What don't you like about it? Does the box scene make you cry or not? I'm asking for a friend. I don't cry during that scene. What are you talking about? Anyways, Dune 2021, directed by Denis Villeneuve, gets a certified Nick Pick. Dune 2021 is a beautiful adaptation of the classic novel that lifts its source material to new heights with its use of world building through character design, story structure, and technical visual aspects. To me, the creative energy and attention to detail of this adaptation will potentially place this larger story and series among the ranks of the other great film epics. Villeneuve's Dune Part 1 presents itself as not only a successful science fiction, but a coming-of-age drama of epic proportions. I think that once Dune Part 2 comes out, and potentially even more films taking place in the Dune universe, that this film franchise will warrant the same reputation as legendary ones, such as the Lord of the Rings series, or the early Star Wars films, or the early Marvel Cinematic Universe films. It just has that grandiose feeling, and I can't wait for it to get its flowers. And I know this movie will one day. Now, moving on to Dune 1984. This will be a different story than Dune 2021. I am not going to come up with another cute little description for this movie because, well, it's, it's the same story. But like I said, uh, this movie depicts the whole story. So Dune 2021's story ends pretty much exactly in the middle of this film. I will preface this by saying that I will not be spoiling anything about the latter half of this story. So if you are seeing Dune Part 2 this weekend, I will not be spoiling anything. Don't worry. So Dune 1984 is directed by David Lynch, known for also directing Blue Velvet, Eraserhead, Elephant Man, and of course, Twin Peaks. This man is a legendary director and creator. So th- it's very interesting to see what happened with this movie. Lynch's Dune is starring Kyle McLaughlin as Paul, Francesca Annis as Jessica, Patrick Stewart as Halleck, and Sting as Fade Rotha, to name a few. There are definitely a lot of things that I like here. Um, there is an element of science fiction and fantasy world building, and it does not at all match the level of world building and science fiction that I think Dune Twenty Twenty One really succeeds at. But it's definitely here, um, and I think that it is mainly credited to the set designs are really good. Um, the makeup effects are good. The creature design is wonderful, and all of this is very practical. This is in the 80s when a lot of these practical effects were in their prime and I really appreciate those. But for everything great in this film, there were probably twice as many really bad things. For example, like there were great set pieces, there was great set design, but the set for Giddy Prime was just horrendous. You know, in Dune 2021, Giddy Prime was like almost like all like this dark black chrome and super scary and intimidating. But in the 1984 edition, uh, the floors and walls of like the buildings on Giddy Prime were all painted uh, the same color as a green screen. So it was just like this world that was like bright lime green, which doesn't match the tone. And it doesn't even match like the characters in this edition. Like the characters still wear like dark clothing and look Pretty intimidating. Also on Giddy Prime, it looks like they're on a soundstage. You you could tell like something about the ceiling. The ceiling, I, I think it was intentional, but it resembles like a soundstage ceiling, and that that's the last thing you want your set to look like is like a soundstage because it just takes you out of the moment. It takes you out of that world. You're like, it, it, what am I looking at here, and The characters in this world also don't look like they belong there. The Harkonnens on Giddy Prime, they were wearing these like dark suits and were pretty accurate to what I believe them to look like in the books, but they just didn't match the world they were living in. And when House Atreides was on Caladan, they didn't match that world either. They looked sort of like elvish with like long wispy hair and eyebrows and stuff. And they were all wearing like military uniforms that costuming for them just was not taken to a creative level in any regard, I think, which I feel bad saying that. But watching this while also watching Twin Peaks, uh, a lot of the actors in Twin Peaks are actually in this edition of Dune, which is really cool. And it was really cool to see them in this project, but they were in parts that were very different from their twin peaks characters and that's fine but they did not fit those parts well it sort of was like the, you took the actors from twin peaks and just hit shuffle and did nothing to sort of like fit them into the mold of the characters and the story uh like if you've seen twin peaks pete uh catherine's husband Who's like this guy that loves fishing and he's kind of awkward and he plays one of the Harkonnens, which are supposed to be really grotesque and intimidating. And, you know, he just sort of acted like Pete. There wasn't anything to make him into a Harkonnen. And I don't know if I should credit that to the directing. I don't know if I should credit that just to casting or maybe just my personal bias. Something here was just not working. Speaking of that, a lot of these characters just felt like they did not have any intention behind them. I felt like there were no strong relationships or or powerful character moments like there were in 2021's Dune. There were a few nice moments between Paul and Jessica, but that's it really. There were no moments that lended themselves to investing you in these characters. And I think that speaks to a larger issue in this film where I think the film is just telling you rather than showing you like, uh, for example, we know that Paul and Chani, one of the Fremen women fall in love. And instead of like actually illustrating this relationship and illustrating why they are in love or this beautiful dynamic that they have, they just start kissing and they just say, I love you, Chani. I love you, Paul. And that's like when they first meet, and it's very out of nowhere. And it's like, am am I supposed to be invested in this? Because I'm not. Another example of this is the fremen in general. The fremen people, the residents of Dune, they do not feel fremen or otherworldly at all. There is no world building in their regard because there's no time dedicated to giving these people their own culture or characteristics. And I already touched on you know the some of the Harkonnen characters just don't look or act the part. I do think though that Kyle McLaughlin does wonderfully as Paul because how could he not? It's Kyle McLaughlin. He was really memorable in the box scene, which I think was one of the standout moments from this version as well. In the box scene, we actually get to see what's happening inside the box, which we don't see in dune twenty twenty one And I think this is a moment where David Lynch's directorial style really stole the spotlight. We see sort of what Paul is feeling, even though this isn't actually what's happening. We see like the skin melting off of his bone and the flesh eating itself up. It's really horrifying and it makes your stomach turn. So I think that it approaches the box scene differently than... Twenty Twenty One's Dune, even though this came first, so I guess Twenty Twenty One approached it differently. But I really liked that we see two different ways that this scene was done, and both are really good. But the real star of this film, and I think this is very interesting considering he didn't get really any screen time, is Sting as Fade Rotha. Fade Rotha is one of the Harkonnens, and I don't exactly know what his purpose is or what he was in the movie to do, but he's basically like the poster child of the Harkonnens, I think. This movie didn't do a good job at communicating his character, but Sting's performance as Fade Rotha was just absolutely mesmerizing. His energy in this role was more than the energy given by all of the other actors in this film combined. The performance was electric and... It was just so fun to watch, and I'm actually curious to see if Austin Butler will be able to fill these shoes, because Sting really took this character and ran with it, and it's unfortunate that the writing could not match this performance, because this character was sort of a letdown, because he sort of has a big part at the very end, and this part just sort of happens, and then it's like, okay, movie's over, pack up, go home. Uh, you know it's just such a kind of disappointing ending and there's really no good introduction or send-off for his character. To sort of summarize all of this, one of my biggest notes while I was watching this is that overall these characters feel just like vanilla versions of themselves. Really the whole movie feels like a vanilla retelling of the book and to get more into this, um, you know, I'm someone who's very interested in the art of adaptation, and I think that there are two different types of adaptation. One, there is adaptation, which really, you know, takes the original source material and it brings something out of it, uh, something that really wasn't super emphasized before. And then I think the other type of adaptation is a retelling or a summary. This, to me, basically feels like someone took a highlighter and just highlighted important parts of the book or whatever the source material is and made the highlighted sections into a movie. It doesn't give you anything new. It's basically just a highlight reel of the source material. This is what Lynch's Dune felt like to me. It was just basically a retelling of key events. So this made the film feel like just a collection of plot points that just sort of happened. There was no suspense leading up to things. Relationships weren't really given any sort of time or attention or nuance to make you interested. And same thing with the plot events. You know, thing major plot points. It would just be like, oh, this is happening. There is an invasion happening now. And Paul goes out into the desert now. And yeah, it happens. And I feel like the film has a very lackluster way of approaching its characters and its story which leads to this feeling like a very vanilla adaptation when a director or writer or whoever is not passionate about adapting source material to a screen you can tell and talking about the book a little bit from what i've read um, the book pretty much reveals all of the major twists i guess to readers upfront. Like You know that the invasion of House Atreides happens very early on, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the film should do the same thing. Books follow a different structure than movies do, so when you're adapting something from a book to a movie, you need to adapt the structure, period. And one movie I'm discussing today did that, and one movie I'm discussing today did not do that. Another thing that Dune 1984 did is that it had a narrator, and that's fine, but the film relied on the narrator so much that this could almost be considered a fictional documentary of sorts. For example, later on in the film, Paul makes like a really big decision, and you don't exactly know what it means because the film doesn't explain it to you through dialogue or through other means so the narrator chimes in and she's like paul is now taking the drink of water and regaining his energy so that he can fight such and such thank you thanks for telling me um i should be able to know that you know if this movie explained things to me that would just make sense but it really doesn't take the time to let audiences learn these things about the film. It just sort of fills in the blanks later with this narrator. It felt like the filmmakers just didn't know how to tell this story or how to pace it. Um, in the middle of the film, there is even a narrated montage of two years that passed by. They could have easily found a smarter way to communicate these two years rather than just have like a narrator chime in and be like, Yeah, over the two years, Paul did this and he did this with the Fremen and the Fremen went and then this war started and blah, blah, blah. Um, Because there's a lot of material there that could have helped this film and helped the relationships be more interesting. And possibly my biggest gripe with this movie is that every single character's inner thoughts are heard there's like a voiceover of what that character is thinking in their heads. I mean, every character, not just main characters, not just Paul. At times, it's even hard to discern what was actually being said out loud and what's being said in someone's head. And most of these things are just obvious. For example, um, when the Judge of Change is writing with the Duke and Paul in the helicopter thingy, you can hear the Judge of Change thinking like, huh, I I really like this Duke guy. And that is all he says. First of all, that's not really like a thought that warrants being heard out loud. Like it's not important enough that we needed to hear that. And second of all, we should be able to infer that based on what's happening in the movie. Like we saw the Duke save all these people from the refinery that was being swallowed by a giant worm. And we should be able to tell like, oh, the Judge of Change respects the Duke now. So because there are so many inner thoughts being made outward, or because there is so much narration happening in this film, it leads me to believe that this film thinks its audiences are not smart enough to make these connections themselves. Or the other option is that this film just doesn't feel confident in its own abilities to tell the story. And they're relying on a narrator just telling you exactly what's happening for you to get the gist. David Lynch and Kyle McLachlan, I am so, so sorry. I love you both. But this film gets the Nick Nicks. But I think you both know that. Um, From what I've heard, David Lynch is not super proud of this movie. So I'm I'm really sorry to rag on it more. Um, I don't think anyone is super proud of this. So I hate to contribute to this conversation when I don't exactly have anything new to add. But, you know, I watched this film and I wanted to review the 2021 film, and I was like, why not do both? To sum it up, David Lynch's Dune aimed to be a faithful adaptation of the classic novel, and that may have been its greatest downfall. While it could and should be enjoyed as the whimsical science fiction it is, it now feels like a thing of the past or the version of a film I would watch if we were reading Dune in high school literature class. What can we learn from these movies? Well, we can learn a lot about adaptation and how to do adaptation the correct way. I think that comparing these two side by side, it becomes abundantly clear what exactly someone can do to the source material to make it successful as a film. And I think we can also learn a lot about genre. I really, really love when two different genres come together, and I'm probably going to review Exorcist one of these days so I can talk more about that. But um, specifically, I love the blending of coming-of-age and science fiction here. I think that is a union that doesn't happen often, so I think that these, both of these films offer something really unique in that regard. And I promise you, the newer Dune adaptation, one day those films, because there's going to be probably more than two, those films will be held at the same level as Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. You heard it here first. Probably not, but I I said it. There we go. Thank you for bearing with me. I feel like I've been rambling a lot today. Uh, first, we had the Warner Bros. rant, and then we had talking about Dune, which gets me all excited and everything. And then we had talking about another Dune, which gets me not excited. Um, so there, there was a lot of ranting and rambling. I hope I made sense. I hope, um, I feel like I have been communicating too well. Uh, I don't know what's happening. I think it's because I've been out of school. I have been graduated all these months and I've been seeing like, I don't type or write as well since graduating from school and like Something that really scares me is when I write two, uh, you know, it's like, oh, I went to the movies today too. I'll write it with one O and I'm like, oh my God, who am I, who am I becoming? I'm not writing as good as I used to. Uh, so does that mean I want to go back to grad school? Do I need to be in an academic setting again? I don't know. Someone please tell me. I need all the answers. I can't, I can't come to conclusions by myself. All right uh we get we have we have a lot to cover today i have one more segment this is a new segment um it will not be in every episode it will only be in an episode if there is content for it but this is a segment called dear coffee nick in this new segment i will be reading some letters from fellow coffee and movie enjoyers about their own coffee and movie opinions reviews thoughts hot takes or whatever and I'll be responding to them if need be. First, I have two letters from Issa. Issa is a fellow barista. I've worked with her before, and she is just such a joy, and I miss working with her so much. Issa, if you're listening to this, I miss you so much. And one day, we'll be making coffee again, I swear it. Issa's first message. Dear Coffee Nick, let's bring back the fun in rom-coms. No more big names, just good vibes and a fun plot. Isa, I agree with you. I would agree even more. However, the film Anyone But You was just released in theaters within the past few months. And not only did this film have good vibes and a fun plot, but it had big names too. It had the whole shebang. And I don't know if you've seen this film or not. If you haven't, I really encourage you to watch it. If you have, I want to know what you think. But I think that this film did bring back the fun in rom-coms. I think No Hard Feelings was trying to bring back the fun in rom-coms, but it did not succeed in doing so. Maybe I'll do a review on that in the future because I have a lot to say about that movie. Issa's second message, she says, Dear Coffee Nick, I have so many thoughts and feelings about final installments of movies being split into different parts isa i am completely on the same page as you and i agree with you i think that what it comes down to though is just it's it's money uh it's a money-making tactic um why not just make two movies and profit off of two movies instead of one you know we saw it with hunger games mockingjay we saw it with twilight harry potter deathly hollows and who knows maybe these movies are better in two parts but uh, I really only think a movie should be broken into two parts like this if that will somehow benefit the story. Like a very relevant example is Dune. I think Dune has two really major climactic points in its story. So that's why I enjoyed Dune Part 1 so much more than Dune 1984 because it breaks the two climaxes into two different films and it works. Thank you so much Isa, for sending in your letters. Alright, our next letter, it says, Dear Coffee Nick. Alright, I have gotten so, so much hate for this movie take, but I truly believe in my whole heart that Morbius was an entertaining movie. It was by no means a good movie at all, but boy did I enjoy watching it. I am not a big movie buff, and I never claimed to be, so maybe that's why I feel this way, but when I saw it in theaters, I didn't hate it. I understand what people are saying, but I really think people are too hard on it sometimes. That's all I have to say. From Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for saying this. Um, I completely agree with you. If a movie is entertaining, it's doing its job. I think that the worst crime a movie can commit is being boring. And... You know a movie doesn't need to be good to be entertaining it doesn't need to be good to be enjoyed so sarah you are completely valid in saying this and also you give me the perfect opportunity to talk about my experience watching madame webb recently my hot take is that madame webb was better is better than argyle argyle if you listen to the first episode you could gather that I did not enjoy that movie at all. Madam Webb, it was not good, but I was entertained, and I did enjoy it. And for that, I gave Madam Webb a higher rating on Letterboxd than I gave Argyle. And so I'm with you on that hot take, Sarah. All right, this next message. Dear Coffee Nick, I'm still not over the best picture fiasco of the 2017 Oscars. Love to hear your thoughts. From Cooper. Cooper, I'm not over it either. I'm not. I don't know what to think of it. I'm so torn by it. And I, I can't pick one over the other. And I I won't. I won't. I think, let's bring back ties. Why not have a photo finish? Let, wha, let's let have a tiebreaker. Let's make La La Land 2 and Moonlight 2 and see which one does better. And let, let's decide then. Um, <laughs> Could you imagine what would happen in Moonlight 2? What would happen in La La Land 2? Uh, (laughs) I do not actually think those should have sequels. Don't don't get it twisted, please. I think that both movies are, this is such a cop-out response, but I, I think that both movies are equally as deserving as Best Picture. And I truly do think that if there were ever to be a tie in the history of Best Picture at the Oscars, it would be 2017. All right the next one dear coffee nick hot take i am a never fan of greece and pretty woman from deb deb i have never seen pretty woman and i have not seen greece in a long long time but you're perfectly valid in that if you're not a fan of those you're not a fan and it's okay to not be a fan of films that are considered classics i mean I can't say I endorse you not being a fan of those because I need to re-watch them or watch them for the first time. But it's okay to not love a classic. You are perfectly valid in that. Okay, and our last one today. Dear Coffee Nick, what movies are you looking forward to releasing this year? The only ones I'm looking forward to are Dune 2 and Joker 2. From Max. Okay, so some of my most anticipated films this year... Uh, Number one, Challengers. Uh, I think that this director, Luca Giagudnino, I don't know how to pronounce it. The one that directed Bones and All and Call Me By Your Name. He's given us such great films and such interesting and culturally significant films. Um, So I'm really interested to see Challengers because I think from what I can tell, it's going to have the same cultural significance. Next, Nosferatu, Um, I I think this film still is not certain to be released this year, uh, but Robert Eggers has also given us some just fantastic and such interestingly crafted films, uh, and I think this will also follow in his other films' footsteps. Alien Romulus, I am a massive fan of the Alien franchise. Um, The original Alien is one of my favorite films of all time, And I've been waiting for the next entry in this series. I was so worried that this series would just kind of die off after Alien Covenant and after being bought over by Disney. But uh, Alien Romulus is coming and I'm so excited. But my most anticipated film of this year is Maxine, starring Mia Goth. I am such a huge fan of X and Pearl. And I think that's just such a cool concept to, you know, very quickly put together this horror trilogy. And I really can't wait to see what the next entry in this series brings us. That's all I have for today's episode. If you'd like to send in a letter, feel free to write Dear Coffee Nick through DM on Instagram or email coffee picks at gmail.com. And that's all I have for you guys today. I'm sorry that it was such a long episode, but it is a double feature. I'm giving twice the amount of fun, and I hope you had fun too. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Coffee Nicks Movie Picks. If you like what you heard, please be sure to give the show a 5-star rating and subscribe on Apple Podcast. Follow the show's accounts on social media, and share the show with your friends. I would greatly appreciate that. I hope you loved this double feature episode. I can't wait to do more in the future. And until next time, I'll be watching some Twin Peaks and cussing under my breath about Warner Brothers. I will see you then. Thanks again for listening to Coffee Nick's Movie Picks. Our opening theme is Summer Solstice on the June Planet by Bail Bonds. Our closing theme is I Feel It All So Deeply, also by Bail Bonds. Before you go, don't forget to give Coffee Nick's Movie Picks the Nick's pick by subscribing and rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can follow Coffee Nick's Movie Picks on Instagram X and TikTok at Coffee Nick's Movie Picks. Again, that's at Coffee Nick's Movie Picks.